Magic Book Club with Benson's for Beds. Welcome to the Magic Book Club podcast, the podcast that takes a deeper look into why our favourite authors put pen to paper. On this week's episode, we're going to be catching up with the incredible Ibiza Boy and Dr. Youssef Salam, all the way from New York, about their beautiful new book, Punching the Air. We'll chat to the lovely Charlie Gilmore to talk about his fascinating new book, Featherhood. And as always, we'll be checking in with some of your favourite authors to find out just what inspires them to write the books we love. Now then, all the way from New York, I am very lucky and honoured to be talking to Ibi Zoboy and Dr Youssef Salam. Ibi is a wonderful author of young adult fiction. Youssef is one of the exonerated Central Park Five, who is working as a transformational speaker across the US. Together, they've put together a truly, truly gorgeous book, Punching the Air. It's uh, it's an absolute honour to speak to you, sir, uh, with, this, with this book now in circulation. Uh, do things feel hopeful? Um, uh, stateside? You know, I don't necessarily think that they feel hopeful, but I do know that it's always a fight. We've been fighting since the inception of America. And when we think about that, you know, here it is right on the heels of the anniversary of the March on Washington, which happened 57 years ago. People were basically crying out for freedom and jobs. And that was on the heels of 100 years after emancipation. And so when you think about the Emancipation Proclamation being signed by Abraham Lincoln, you would have thought that the the space that we would be in as those who had been pushed to the margins of society in America, we would be in a completely different space. But the truth of the matter is that we are in a space that has never truly wanted equality, has never truly wanted true freedom for Americans who happen to look like me. They rather have the 13th Amendment be our... Um, be something that kind of uh, herds us into the new concentration uh, camps slash the new cotton fields of America, which is the prison industrial complex. And so I'm hopeful that that we as a people are in this age of 2020, that we get the opportunity to open our eyes and to see things with perfect vision, as opposed to things being politics as usual. And, you know, if you if you know about black culture, people have said politics as usual, <laughs> because we've always been promised something that we've never gotten. And and hope, I guess, of course, is what Amal, our protagonist in Punching the Air, his name means. Um, uh, there are so many questions that I want to ask you about how how you worked with Ibi and and how you came to a decision about what you wanted to put of your own story into this book. I mean, how did that, how was that process with you and Ibi? Were there, there things that you knew that you didn't want in that, in to, to, to come into play, or were there things, things that had to go in? How was that process for you? Oh, it was a very, very beautiful, powerful process. You know, both Ibi and I met 21 years ago, and we, we were, you know, we were uh, privy to be in the same class where we were learning about the African worldview and the, you know, the consciousness that had been stripped from us. You know, the worst thing that has happened in America is that we've been taught out of slavery what the system and what the world wants us to believe is the truth. And the worst part is that that truth is not true. It's almost like someone feeling overwhelmed and completely uh, dismayed at what they're seeing because the system is telling us it's raining outside, but we can clearly see that we are being peed on, for lack of a better description. <laughs> yeah, so well, I think in that you, context, yes. 
I think it's it's interesting because I want I wanted you to know that uh, my my teenage daughter who is seventeen, um, and I read this book together because I wanted to be able to talk with her um, about right. it, and 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 what what is there's been so much discussion about is how history is written, who chooses to write history, um, and, and what bits you leave out, and there's been a lot of discussion, you know, in the, in the UK about uh, how large chunks of British history primarily about the British Empire, um, are just missed out of the educational process. And she has genuinely been so moved by, by bits of history and stories that she simply did not know about. Um, so so what, is there a huge responsibility that you carry when you, when you are involved and you write your story, Youssef, and, and of course your personal story and this book as well? Absolutely. We have an overwhelmingly powerful responsibility when it comes to telling the truth, right? You know, you're looking at a person who's been run over by the spike wheels of justice. And as you look at the criminal justice system, a system that I call a criminal system of injustice, what you're seeing is that we have two different um, justice systems working in America. One where you're afforded every opportunity under the sun, and the other one the other one where you are seen as guilty, having to prove yourself innocent. And so when we examine the criminal justice system in, in that truth, we realize that, as been said, it's not about the truth, but it's about who can tell the best story to the jury. And so if the jury is being hoodwinked, if the jury is being bamboozled into believing the lie, then what does that say about us as a people? We as a people have the overwhelming opportunity to participate in, in, in our own true freedom, justice, and equality, especially voting power, right? We can't just look at it as rights, but we have to look at it as power because the power that they have usurped, it, it, it becomes so clear when you think about the overwhelming majority of people that are in the prisons. The landscape of the prison industrial complex is black and brown. That's the overwhelming majority of the people that are there. And so when those people come back to the, to the world, as they say in America, when they are returned to society, they should be given all of the things that was taken from them, but yet they are not. They're relegated to second-class citizenship. They still have to pay taxes. And in <laughs> America, course. they say no taxation without representation. <laughs> and so imagine that. We have to still pay taxes, but we are not being represented. And overwhelmingly, when we try to participate in the voting process, which is really our power, many of us are not able to. E.B., they, um, uh, Youssef used the, the jury, the, the courtroom, the uh, analogy there. Uh, my daughter found um, Amal's, uh, Amal's um, description of how he felt in the book as the jury drew their verdict as one of the most moving pieces in the book for her. Um, uh, what was the decision? When, how was the decision made to write in verse, which this is so unique? It's such a unique. And actually, when you, re when you kind of start reading, you go, why, why aren't more young adult books written like this? This makes perfect sense. Um, what was the decision process about writing in verse? Was it just instinctive? It was always going to be like that. No, actually, um, this idea came from Youssef, not in the fact of, you know, not by him saying, I want this book in verse, 
when I ran into Youssef after meeting him for the first time 20 years, 21 years ago, I saw him at a book festival a few years ago and he was selling his self-published book of poetry. And um, I thought it was just a grave injustice to us um, that he is self-published and he didn't have an avenue to get his story out to a wider readership. And in that self-published book was a series of poems that he had written while he was incarcerated. And one of those poems stood out to me and it was called I Stand Accused. And he later told me that this is something he recited in the courtroom after he had received um, his false conviction. And it was so incredibly insightful and profound that for a 16, you know, for a 16 year old boy to be able to articulate his experiences in that way, it wasn't so much about his feelings. It was more about his political awareness. Uh, So that serves that that poem serves as a foundation for punching the air in that we could tell a story in a series of interconnected poems because his poem, Yusef's poem, was so incredibly profound that we wanted to make Yusef, 16-year-old Yusef, an updated version of, um, of himself in 2020. So in that sense, it was, it made perfect sense. Yusef was a poet, I was a poet, and we used those skills to tell the story of Amal in a series of poems called A Novel in Verse. I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to refer to my daughter again, but this is a young adult uh, book, but she's, so my daughter is um, quite dyslexic um, and uh, she's flown through it. She's absolutely flown through it, which, you know, so um, there is something about verse, Yousef, that uh, gets to the point um, so quickly, the rhythm, uh, you know, the, the, the rhythm of it, the, uh, the, the ease of, with which you write that just gets to the point so quickly and uh, so precisely. Um, uh, so she's, she's really enjoyed reading in this way. Well, that's, a, that's really encouraging because one of the things that we had hoped was that we get the opportunity to really pull the reader through. You know, we've often, we've often described this book as being accessible to folks as young as eight all the way up to 80. And we wanted it to be a beautiful process. You know, and, and writing it in verse, I think, gave us the opportunity to really use the least amount of words coupled with the brilliance of beautiful graphics and also the, the layout on the page to really pull the reader through and into that kind of immersive process that they see um, this book and they can see themselves and see their um, experience, if you will, um, or, or, or be able to walk vicariously, I think, in the shoes of Amal or in the shoes of the teacher, Miss Rinaldi, or in the shoes of any one of the characters in the book, right? It gives yeah. the reader the opportunity to vicariously see what it is like. And, and when we talk about bridging the divide of what racism is and how we can experience it and really talk it and maybe change it, 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 it happens because people get the opportunity to experience for themselves what it's like to go through an awful experience like this. And, and Yousef, I know that you and Ebi have sp- spoken um, a lot and are great believers in the healing power of art um, and words. Um, were they of great comfort to you? I know that you wrote um, when you were incarcerated. Were they, were, they, were, they, were they things that you went to in times of desperation? Oh, absolutely. You know, I'm a graphic designer. I've been drawing since I was born. And writing poetry was a, was a love of mine and still is a love of mine. It gives you the awesome opportunity to 
do what I call active meditation, live meditation, walking meditation. And so as you let your mind wander, as you know, even in bondage, wherever your mind goes, your body follows. And when you give your, your, yourself the awesome opportunity of participating in your own freedom, even though you are locked away, you have a tremendous, tremendous opportunity to change your condition and really change the outcome of what they are trying to do. You know, you could either do time or let time do you. And if you let time do you, you become an accident of time. You become a part of the people that become very, very bitter about the situation that they had just gone through knowing that it wasn't supposed to happen that way, knowing that they didn't deserve it. Um, that I'm just remembering bitterness is a waste of time. Who said that, that you mentioned a couple of times? It was, was it Maya Angelou, um, one, I, who, was a, who, was a, who was a great inspiration to me when I was ah, a kid yes. starting to read? Yeah. Yes, yes, um, yes. <laughs> there, was, um, there are so many moments in the book, kind of um, really important moments, whether that's with Miss Rinaldi, or I don't know. I don't want to give too much away uh, with his with his friend uh, that he makes, who is who is problematic um, with the mural on the wall, which nearly broke me um, reading yeah. that. Um, uh, I think uh, Eb, how, how do you sit down with Youssef? How do you sit down and kind of go, okay, this is these are the bits we need in. These are the bits. I mean, how do you edit, or do you? Oh, uh, so. You know, I was involved in the editing process, um, but the writing process was a series of conversation. Um, I'm a firm believer of um, writing process, not just being writing, putting words on the page. It is conversation. It is active listening and observation. So for me, it was a series of discussions with Youssef, him reflecting on his experiences, very much uh, the same way that you hear him reflecting on his experiences now. And he brings such wisdom to, to what has happened to him that I took that wisdom and insight and infused them into poetry, um, took some of his poems from his self-published book and infused it into the novel. It's just about wrapping up those insights and making them poems for young people, making it making them easily accessible and digestible to young readers. Uh, some things that he says quite often that by going to prison, he went from, you know, from the womb to the tomb and back to the womb. And I had to take that and understand the layers of metaphor and infuse it into the story of Amal. So it was just nuggets of wisdom, processing that and turning in, it into poetry and basically it's his worldview a worldview that we share but I could not have created a character like Amal without Yusef's experiences and his ability to reflect on those experiences with keen wisdom. Evie I'm going to ask you because we don't get the chance to do this very much but why uh, I mean were you always drawn to writing young adult uh, fiction were you, was it or did you did you go through what, what is it about young adult fiction that you enjoy so much? Interestingly enough, I was I was an aspiring journalist when I met Youssef um, in 1999, um, and I was also a poet. Um, so poetry allowed me to speak truth to power. Um, I was taking you know the news of the day and sort of trying trying my hand at investigative journalism, but I had opinions about that. As you know, journalism is all fiction and fact, um, not fiction, all 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 fact, not fiction. 
and poetry has a way gave me a way to process that that um, nonfiction to process all that news and information that was coming to me. But eventually, I started writing short stories again to process the news of the day. And I realized that children are malleable. Children, um, you can change their ideas. You can help them develop their ideas. And I think it is the most um, captive audience. It is the most impressionable. So, I, I, and I believe that stories for children have immense power in shaping our worldviews. And this particular book, Punching the Air, is a young adult novel simply because Yusef was a teen when this incident first happened to him. We didn't want the world to forget that he was basically a yeah. child at 15 and 16. Well, um, uh, and I think, again, pointing out to uh, my daughter how old Yusef you were when this happened and that releasing this book into a world where Donald Trump, who played such um, a vocal part in what happened to you um, was absolutely astonishing to her. Absolutely. So at the moment, then as well, mm -hmm. I was going to, I was going to, I was going to say, Yusuf, you, you know, you now work as a as a as a speaker, a motivational speaker, an inspirational speaker, transformational speaker across the U.S. I hope someday that you'll manage to make it across here. Have you have you spoken in the U.K. at all? I have not. I've, I've, I'm actually an international speaker. I have spoken yeah. outside of the United States. I've been uh, as far as uh, Saudi Arabia. Um, I've been in Africa. I've spoken uh, via Zoom and Skype in uh, Temple Japan, their law school. Um, but I would love to be there, you know, and to share my story and really bring both Evie and I there to to not only experience the great culture there, but also to share our wisdom and story about what's happening in America. Well, so listen, yes. I mean, this is this is what I'm, I, I think, you know, so my, she's been reading it. We, we talk about it together. What do you say to um, a teenager from from Great Britain um, who wants to stand up for something that's right, but doesn't know where to start? She was you know, she's a she's a young white girl in the suburbs of a repressive British society, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, and then, you know, reading about your story, Yusuf, uh, she's watched 13th. The Netflix series she watched the Netflix uh, Netflix series, um, uh, of course, about your story, Yusuf, and um, and now has read the book. What do you say to somebody like her who is who is so aggrieved with the world and wants to do something, but it, it's so much to take in? How what do you say to her? You know, one of the biggest things I always remember is that someone used their privilege in the past to help me, and it's our job to use our privilege to help others. We don't necessarily have to be in America to be able to really reach out and uplift and, and you know, add truth, speak truth to power. But I think anywhere we are, anytime we see an injustice, we have to speak out against it. You know, I come from a faith that says that if you see a wrong, you should change it. And you can change it in one of three ways, whether you speak out against it or you change it with, with something physical, like you can stop somebody from doing something bad, or you can hate it at least within your heart. And I think that that's the, that's the important part because a lot of times when you think about what we're responding to, we are responding to the humanity in others. And sometimes we see others and they're, they're completely over, like trampling over our human rights, trampling over our civil rights, completely oblivious to it all. But once we see people for people, see people for who they are and truly what they need to be, 
then we, we, we have this awesome opportunity to allow them to exist. And it's about coexisting. It's about, you know, psychosocially, everyone matters. And, and as we begin to teach people and tell people that they are valuable, then they begin to add value. That's one of the reasons why in Punching the Air, we chose so many different examples, whether that, been, whether that was through the teacher, Ms. Rinaldi, whether mm-hmm. that was through the prison officer, whether that was through even the persons in the prison that befriended Amal, you know? There's all of these opportunities of, of expression that you can see yourself in and figure out, well, this is a book of fiction, but we also know that it is based on my story. And we know that because it's based on my story, there is some truth that some people somewhere have gone through something like this. We have now the opportunity to choose better, to choose different, especially as a teacher. We don't have to take a child that's in front of us and recreate them in our minds to make them into what we want them to be. We have the opportunity to say, hey, who is this child? What can we do to make this child the best child, the best caretaker of tomorrow by doing what we have to do today? Um, I, I'm so I'm so sad and frustrated that we have so little time to talk to each other. But you've talked so much already to so many people, and please keep talking. Um, and Eb, I love your books, and our family love your books. And Ed is my 17 year old is now in the middle of ice cream, uh, which is which is fantastic. Um, uh, Yusef uh, um, is such a beautiful book. I've loved every single bit of it, um, and I hope we get to hear you and see you in the UK talking to some of our young people soon. But uh, congratulations on the book and, um, and it, it's wonderful. Thank you so much for uh, giving us your time. Thank, Thank you. you as well, I appreciate it. Right, now it's time to catch up with the author that the Elton John cannot stop talking about. And when you know Elton John loves your book, it's a good one. I'm talking about Charlie Gilmore and his new novel, Featherhood. Hello, how are you? Hi, I'm great. Thank you so much for having me having me on it's really lovely to uh, to talk about the book it's no problem at all how does it feel having elton john as a fan i mean he didn't just he didn't just he didn't just write something he did an instagram post i mean good grief he did i i, I when i saw that i mean i i nearly jumped out of my skin because i sort of uh, the nature of the video was such that i thought you know he was going to make an appeal for world world peace or something like <laughs> that but actually it was you know everyone go out and buy this book it's you know it's it's, i mean it's incredible and um and so lovely that uh, of him to do that it's such a sort of kind-hearted thing to do it was uh, wasn't someone it? who yeah for someone that he doesn't actually you know we've never actually met well listen um i i i'm going to start with lockdown and how this time has been for you because for some mm-hmm. writers it's been uh, very claustrophobic um, for other writers that we've spoken to, it's been a, a time of huge creative gain. How have you been faring in lockdown? Luckily, I finished writing this book just before all of this really started kicking off because, I mean, I, I can't even really dream at the moment. So I, I, I'm in awe of anyone who's been able to actually uh, have the mental space to, to string a, a sentence together. Because I, you know, I'm, it's, it, it, yeah, I can't imagine how anyone could do that. You've, uh, you've been, you've been spending the time uh, fairly creatively, though, haven't you? Because um, we've been, we've been delighted by the von Trapped family evenings. Um, uh, tell us about these and how they've, how they came about, Charlie. Because it's been great to watch. Um, so they came about uh, quite naturally. My mum 
also had a had a book published um, sort of during lockdown. This is the very uh, brilliant Polly Sampson and Theatre of Dreams that we featured on the Magic Book Club, actually. So, exactly, yeah, which is a, a brilliant, as you said, it's a really a brilliant book. And, and during lockdown, people really responded to it because it's set on the on the Greek island of Idra, and um, to read it is to be transported there, which when people weren't allowed to leave the country. I mean, it's a, it's a wonderfully written book. Yeah. Beside that, um, but we were meant to be doing these sort of live uh, shows to celebrate the launch of the book. And obviously we couldn't do that during lockdown. Um, so my partner, who's a, who's a set designer, along with my little brother, built this set, a sort of recreation of a bar on the Greek island of Idra. And we did the show, but just as a live stream. And then people watching from home, stuck at home, seemed to get a lot from it. So we just sort of carried on doing it. Uh, all the way up until my book was launched, and we did uh, we did my book launch as a sort of um, as a live stream, uh, an evening of birds and words. We got we got all the chickens to come instead of people. <laughs> it was gorgeous. And then there's your absolutely charming little girl, like stuffing her fist into loaves of stinging nettle bread. <laughs> all sorts yeah. going on. It's yeah. been it must it looked really really good fun. Anyway, it kept us entertained. So for that, we're we're very grateful. We're also very grateful uh, for this this hugely tender, very brave, beautiful book of yours. Um, a tale of I guess nature versus nurture, really. But I'm very nervous to pigeonhole it into sort of that genre of autobi autobiography because it's so much more than that. And please excuse the bird reference there. Have you found a way of telling everybody what it's about? Well. It, it, it begins as a, as a story about, uh, it's a memoir, and it, and it begins just with this, this magpie that fell out of its nest and landed in my life. And it, and it sort of begins as me learning how to look after this creature and learning about magpies, which until one pretty much landed, you know, almost on my head, I didn't really know much about them. And, and they're, they're a member of the crow family, which is, you know, they're almost as intelligent as monkeys. Um, you know, some people say they're as intelligent as, you know, toddlers, other members of the crow family have uh, powers of reasoning equal to seven-year-old children. So while looking up after this bird, I found out all this incredible stuff. And I also found out that my biological father, who was this slightly um, wild poet and magician who vanished in the dead of night when I was a baby, also had a similar bond with another member of the crow family, a jackdaw. Um, which I didn't know up until then. It was this completely crazy coincidence. And so the, the book unfolds from there, and it's a story of two birds, two men, uh, and it's the story of, you know, my father as well, and uh, who, who, who I never really knew and, and disappeared when I was a baby. And it's about trying to know him while raising this bird. And, and he also became uh, quite ill and, and, and died um, while I had this bird. And so it's, it's about coming to terms with, with, with all of those issues while thinking about becoming a father myself, basically. It's about birds and fathers in a nutshell. It's, I mean, the, uh, the kind of, the, it feels so sort of powerfully led by the universe and, you know, that, that, that complete coincidence about you both um, accidentally having this relationship with, with, with a bird. Was this, uh, and, you know, it's a very, it is a deeply, intensely personal account of your relationship with your birth father um, and, and, you know, and the, the, the traumas that you went through as a young adult. Um, was this book always on the cards for you? Did you know somewhere deep inside that you were going to have to write this at some point? I think 
one of the reasons for writing it was to try and make sense of what I didn't understand. And I think that's the reason lots of people write particularly memoirs, because there's some sort of knot in their life that they need to unpick. And the question of why my biological father disappeared was something I never, ever got the answer to over the course of, uh, of his life. He never, ever, ever, ever explained himself um, to any degree. And in fact, and it, so seems like, it seems like as well, the, 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 more you, the more you asked, the more complex it got for you. Indeed, yeah. Because um, I did at, at, at various points in my life, you know, track him down. Um, and he responded in a number of ways uh, over the years. Um, and I responded in a number of ways also. Um, uh, and our relationship was extremely difficult. Um, but he, he was never, ever forthright with the, with, with, with the truth about what really happened. And, and, and when I put him on the spot, so it took me until I was about 20 years old to actually ask him directly. Um, and he just, you know, denied that, that there was anything wrong with him or that anything had really happened, um, which sort of sent me into this quite crazy tailspin, uh, as you probably remember from the book. Um, <clears throat> so in a sense, it's a book of, it's, it's almost, the book is almost, in part, it's a book about birds, but it's also slightly a, 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 mystery, a book about a mystery. You know, why do fathers disappear? Why did my father disappear? It's, uh, it's and I think as well, you know, when you're, when you're going through this journey, writing this down, um, is it a matter of kind of because you're very you, you're very open about what happened you're very open about uh, how it affected you were there mm. any particularly tricky bits that you had to really think hard about sharing or when you do something like this charlie has everything got to be on the table i think the only way i could have written this book and for it to have been good was for it to have been a completely open-chested you know, here it all is, guts out, piece of work. Um, and obviously, you know, there are moments in writing it when it felt like writing in blood, and sometimes it felt like the blood I was writing with wasn't really mine to write with, you know, it was... Yeah. It really was a book that, that, that was extremely difficult to write. It was like sort of performing open-heart surgery on myself at times. Um, but I think that's the way you have to write a book like this for it to be any good. And alongside this, like terribly difficult relationship, and um, you know how it how it affected you, right through to your prison time, you mm. have this you have this incredible story of this bird, who in complete contrasts needs you to survive. Um, it just absolutely is, is 100% dependent on you. And in amongst, I have to say that it's so beautifully balanced because in amongst this great trauma that you've obviously been through this, you know, very bold um, uh, way that you've sh you've shared that there is this there's this this huge humor in the daily the daily grind of looking after a, a noisy, difficult, spiky, messy bird between you mm. and your and your partner. Um, and 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 the but but also learning so much about the bird and it was you know the little phrases like you know the the house all you know just suddenly felt like a, a death trap is something mm. like parents everywhere 
will will completely understand that you wake up one morning and the house is a dangerous place. Um, it must have been it must have been wonderful looking back on that bit of this journey for you, actually, how it all started with uh, with Benzine, the beautiful magpie. Yeah, no, th- those are the bits I most in- enjoyed writing, actually, were, you know, uh, uh, trying to get this, cr- this creature, this incredibly intelligent, charming creature. And I wouldn't recommend to anyone that they have, they live with a magpie, <laughs> you know, as brilliant and charming as they are, they're destructive and they poo in your hair and you can never find your house keys because they've, you know, hidden them on top of the, the bookshelf or, you know, somewhere inexplicable. Um, but... You know that that was fan- that was fantastic to write about, and and I'm glad that you enjoyed it, it too, because those are definitely the bits that I most enjoyed. Well, and, and also in an intriguing level, there are other people that you managed to find and get in contact with in the the Covine community, as you've called it. And there is so is the Crow Forum a thing? Because you write about kind of you know trying to to seek out people with other bits of you know other bits of wisdom about how to look after a bird, and you refer to the Crow Forum as is it an actual thing? Yes, indeed. So when I was sort of first with this bird and wondering, you know, what on earth do I do with this creature? And was trying to, you know, find other people who had looked after members of the crow family. And first there was Heskett, my birth father, who was not minded to be especially helpful. And then, you know, I found out that the the poet Lord Byron had lived with a crow. Charles Dickens kept two ravens. Truman Capote had had a pet raven called Lola. Um, who, who disappeared in a very tragic and poetic way. Um, yes. Many, many others, and, 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 and contemporaries too. You know, people are coming across these birds all the time and picking them up and then discover for one reason or another that they're quite difficult to put down. <laughs> and lots of these people are indeed on the... The, the Crow Forum is a sort of amalgam of, uh, of various, various different places on the internet. I didn't want to actually give the particular name because it's... Um, but it's, it feels like it's like a mum's net for people who have got yeah, crows. Exactly. That's a very gosh. I, I should have made that joke in the book. <laughs> it was awesome. I was like, I just want to, I really want to go now and, and just, but oh, yeah. I mean, what a joy to, what a joy to find out so, so, so much about um, a fellow creature. And um, mm. I, I wanted to ask in, in terms of this, this white, the, the writing process for you, Charlie, where did it, where did it all start? start then and when did you sit down and how did you sit down and start writing was this uh, something that you just sort of let unfold or was was there a plan was there a structure how how did you approach it i had a brilliant brilliant editor uh, called lettuce franklin at uh, my publisher o'brien who um it was just so wonderful at sort of helping me with with the structure of the whole thing because it's it's a slightly complex interweaving of 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 several stories, my own story, uh, my biological father's story, and then the story of these two birds. Um, and it's partly thanks to her that it that it, it it was sort of interwoven. I think you know in the end quite neatly. Um, but she just left me to my own devices to 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 write a first draft, um, which I never ever want to go back and look at again. I, it would sort of be like looking at a teenage diary or something <laughs> like that. Um, and then strangely, the, the sort of moment of clarity came when my daughter was born. And the only time I really had for writing was that she'd wake up at four in the morning and then I'd just decide to stay up. And it was that sort of four in the morning till sunrise time, which I, people say this a lot, but when you have a, chi- a child, you know, really, really makes you get stuff done in the time that you have available. 
Um, so I was sort of writing the book with one hand and, and sort of at times uh, virtually, you know, jiggling the pram with the other hand. But that was when this actual draft got done and it took this sort of final, final shape, um, strangely. It's a it, it's a weird sort of another time, isn't it? That um, when you when you've got a small child, it's a it's a weird time that does strange things, and uh, you know, it, yeah, it's a it's a really special time actually. So uh, it's interesting that you 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 know found it really really productive to to write. Then are you a writer? Because uh, you know you've been writing for a long time now, and are you a writer that knows when you've finished an article or or this book or a piece of writing? Or is it is it never really finished? Um, this I definitely felt done with this. Um, I can but, imagine you did. You probably needed a lie down after this and a great big hug. <laughs> that would have been nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. No, it was a very very intense book book to write, and and writing it really felt like getting something out of my system as well. Well, it's the great thing about literature, isn't it? It's that it's the only job that you're going to be paid to sort of delve into yourself and come out the other end um, yeah. which is a, it's just a great place it's a great luxury um uh now because it would think it would be an understatement to say that you are surrounded by an, a very creative family including mm. your brilliant mother polly sampson uh who wrote theater of dreamers which is just gorgeous so what does what does a son do when his mum is a writer and you are living so closely to each other do you let and mum and mum is so obviously intertwined in this story and is of such great yeah. relevance do you let her read the drafts were there conversations or does she mm. did she get a look in as a as a critic or and as a mother uh no none of those things wow. i mean she, it, she, <laughs> she i didn't let her read a read a draft until very 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 late in the process um and i because i couldn't really let anyone read it at all just because it was so intensely yeah personal and some of the things dealt with around mental health and certain incidents that happened in prison um and and indeed because she's one of the main characters in the book you know i, yeah, I couldn't course. i couldn't really let anyone read. although she was brilliant with it with all sorts of advice about you know the discipline of writing and you know the importance of keeping hours and you know when i eventually did let her read a, 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 a something approaching a final draft you know, she had some some brilliant comments to make, and I'm incredibly lucky to have, um, you know, a, 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 such a wonderful writer as a mother. Um, but it did feel like in the early stages it was just something between me and my editor. I couldn't really let anyone else look at him. Um, uh, and has this sort of encouraged you to write another? Um, are you are you sold in the memoir? Um, or or novel genre, or are you are you are you are you done? I don't think I'm done. No, I'm, I hope working, not. I'm, yeah, <laughs> thank you. Well, thanks for saying that. Um, I'm working on one or two other ideas. But I'm not sure which one I'm quite going to go with yet. But I'd love to write more books. I mean, that would be a dream. Um, it's in your blood. It's in your blood, Charlie. Be, there's <laughs> there's more to come for sure. Um, for for people who have tricky fathers and for everybody else everywhere it's so lovely it's such it's so well written and i really enjoyed it so thank thank you very much for featherhood now i'm sure that you've been diving back into your favorite novels over the past few months i have to say oh, if in doubt 
I usually default to Thomas Hardy and Tessa the Durbervilles, a little bit of Charles Dickens and, of course, a classic Jilly Cooper. If you've ever wondered what inspires the authors behind your faves, well, we found out. Hi there, I'm Mike Gale, author of All the Lonely People. Well, because um, it's about um, a, Jamaican pair, uh, a Jamaican pensioner, I suppose I was listening to uh, a lot of um, ska and reggae from the sort of uh, late 50s and early 60s. Um, things like Alton Ellis and um, just to sort of, you know, scar music to sort of really get me in the mood for um, and the Calypso music to make me think about my character Hubert Bird and what life was like for him when he came to England in the 1950s. I suppose my ritual is that, you know, whenever I write, it has to be morning. Um, I'm a morning person, so, you know, I like to get to my computer as soon as possible and um, I write till about midday-ish and then I'm exhausted. So that's pretty much my writing ritual, that and tea. I write in my office upstairs. Um, it used to be my daughter's bedroom and so um, many years ago and I still haven't got around to painting it, so it's got pink walls. I suppose there wasn't one individual person, but I suppose it was that the whole of the Windrush generation. This is a book. Um, All the Lonely People is, is a book about, um, in part, is it is a book about loneliness, but it's also a part in the book about um, one person's life. And so, looking at all those um, those people who had left their their country, left Jamaica, left the West Indies to come to England. I suppose that's what I was thinking about and those were the, the sort of people that I was uh, trying to channel when I was writing a story. My favourite thing to do is uh, to sort of walk the dog in the afternoon and he is like, you know, even though he hasn't got a watch, <laughs> uh, he is will be there at exactly the same time every single day demanding his daily walk. Um, come rain will shine, so um, I do really look forward to it. That's all we've got time for this week on the Magic Book Club podcast. Join us next time for more of your favourite authors and stories. In the meantime, happy reading. Happy reading.